I also hope that with everybody in society threatened by this invisible agent of mortality, the coronavirus, that anxiety, that discomfort, that worry, that sense of vulnerability in the face of mortality translates towards recognition of how much support and help from knowledgeable people can do for people with serious illness after the red hot fire of their own mortality is removed. I hope people remember how important it is to really stand with people as they live through really hard times and movement towards death. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. Our primary objective is to prioritize the patient voice and health system delivery reform to achieve person-centered care. We are dedicated to amplifying the powerful stories of individuals and the collective needs of various communities across the country. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and today I get the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Michael Fracken, who's a palliative care provider in rural Northern California. During his off hours, he enjoys dancing to live music with his family, surfing with his kids, and marshmallows are his new favorite comfort food during this COVID season. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your area. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. This is really a pleasure to uh, speak outward from my little rural home in far Northern California. Um, where we built Resolution Care Network um, is where I live, which is about five, five and a half hours north of the Bay Area in the wild Redwood Coast of Northern California. California dreaming. I love it. And so tell us a little bit about what is Resolution Care um, and what type of services do you all provide? Resolution Care Network is the culmination of three ideas in medicine uh, built on a platform of burnout. So in 2015, I pretty much had it um, and had been frustrated gathering the resources necessary to build a fully composed palliative care model. Uh, and that includes a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, a community health worker, a care coordinator, all working together from a sort of 360 degree view to support people and their families as they face serious illness. I was trying to do that, but I was trying to be all those elements of an interprofessional team. And um, that didn't work out so well. I mean, I just didn't really, couldn't possibly um, meet the needs of people. I couldn't possibly see them other than through the eyes of a well-trained palliative medicine physician. Uh, so as I approached 2015, um, I learned about value-based contracting. I learned about crowdfunding campaigns. And I noticed this object, this cell phone in my pocket and thought maybe it would be a reasonable tool to connect me to people um, under our care. And so at the end of 2014, I launched a crowdfunding campaign to fund the initial startup of Resolution Care Network. And I started to build out a model with the help of some health plan partners that allowed us to use a technology enabled 
home-based, fully composed palliative care program to meet with people in their homes. And so that's what we do. We've done it for about five and a half years. We currently have a couple of hundred people under care. Um, we've probably touched the lives of nearly 2,000 people and families in rural and now all over the state of California who wouldn't otherwise have any access to thoughtful person-centered care. Yeah, I love that, thoughtful person-centered care. Um, I think that thoughtful piece is sometimes missing. I really admire how you, you took an unfortunate situation. The unfortunate situation is the burnout, <laughs> you know, of you trying to do the most <laughs> and be all things to everyone and realize that there's power in having a team to really help you cover all those aspects. Um, so before Resolution Care, you were working independently? Like, did you have your own practice or what did that look like beforehand? I came to, to Humboldt County in uh, 1996 and I started as a primary care internal medicine doctor focused on complex conditions, always having a passion for uh, hospice care and end of life care and uh, sort of a natural inclination to um, really person-centered care. Like what's the lived experience of people getting sick? So I worked in a community clinic program. I became a hospice medical director. I um, worked as a hospitalist a bit. I did a little work up in Pelican Bay, the state prison uh, up here in Northern California, always looking for something that might be sustainable and something that might be um, both medically uh, excellent as well as sustainably meaningful. Um, and I struggled until building resolution care to kind of find that. You said you've always had this interest in hospice and palliative care. And what inspired that? Because that is a very interesting niche and feel that quite honestly, everyone isn't cut out for. Um, so yeah. what really inspired, you know, that passion to serve that population? My grandfather was the coolest guy ever. Uh, he was about four foot 10, maybe 11 inches wet, tall. <laughs> um, and when I was a little kid, he was the only one that ever seemed to really be interested in me. Mm -hmm. um, he was the kind of guy who'd get on the floor. He's the kind of guy that would play. He's the kind of guy who played the piano, would make up songs. And he just seemed more interested in me, not as a grandkid, mm -hmm. but as a Michael. Like he wanted to see what was coming through mm. with me. And and that made a difference. Um, yeah. He used to come up with my grandmother from New York City um, every month for years and years and years. And they'd come up once a month. They'd stay for three, four days. They'd bring all the cool stuff from New York City, the, the deli stuff and the pastry stuff and all these particular foods, I remember. And then he stopped coming. They stopped coming. And I was a kid. I was maybe eight years old. And I didn't notice anything until my dad told me about a year later, uh, Papa died. Wow. And all I remember feeling was angry. And I stayed that way until we got to the memorial service. And there was everybody was walking around. Oh, he was a great guy. Oh, he loved you so much. Oh, now, now, isn't it? terrible isn't it? it was just seemed like 
I was just like disgusted somehow by what seemed even to an eight-year-old kid, like all these platitudes and that I was just a, an object to pat mm. on the head. And I remember walking down the aisle towards the open casket and looked inside and I had this understanding that actually stuck with me. I was like, oh my God, that's not him. And I looked around and people had been talking about him being lost and gone. And there he was in the box. And I just realized that we are not this. We are not our body. We are not our skin. We are not even all the things that we've done. We're not our resume. We're not our test scores. Or something else that is much more interesting. And that stayed really interesting to me. So that while I was fascinated and drawn to looking at these crazy and unusual, edgy boundaries of life, um, while most people were going the other direction. And by doing that, I kept learning and learning and learning things that people would know if they did the same. And as I developed myself as a palliative care doctor, I really wanted to be able to invite people to feel comfortable looking right at the truth of things. And if they have that courage or I can encourage them and hold their hand, what happens to unfold organically is that healing happens because it is a reflection of our nature to achieve higher and higher levels of order or well-being. Now that depends on the fact that you've got food in your belly, a place to live, connection and love, support, reasonable freedom from horrible trauma. In our society, white skin, I'll mention, you know, lots of things that get you up on Maslow's hierarchy where even talking about psycho-spiritual healing makes sense. Um, but if you've got the basics and you are well cared for and you're not suffering terribly from symptoms or distress or anxiety or confusion or loneliness or hunger or lack of safety, if you're not suffering from those avoidable elements, it's been amazing to watch people transform themselves and their lives, even in the very last moments of life. Mm. That's what keeps me getting up in the morning. Wow. Michael, we can end the podcast here. <laughs> no, no. I want to keep talking, Ashley. This is fun. Your storytelling capabilities are fascinating. How do you use those skills to break down what palliative care means to your patients? What I say is, listen, my name is Michael, Michael Fracken. I am a father and a husband and a brother and a son. And I'm also what's called a palliative care doctor. Now, you probably don't know what that is, so I'm going to tell you. Palliative care really focuses on three things. Number one, we don't take care of any patients. We only take care of people. And we do that, remarkably enough, 
with another bunch of people. People with skills and knowledge and experience, people that have degrees, doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, community health workers, or community health uh, or care coordinators. We all sort of work around bringing our skill set as well as our personhood to understand what a person needs and wants from the situation that they find themselves in. So number one, people know patients. Number two, we're very good at symptom control. Like all the stuff you feel as a result of being real bad sick, pain, nausea, fatigue, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're not perfect, but we've got a pretty good bag of tricks and we know how to use it. Number two, symptom control. Really important for people um, as they're navigating their quality of life and trying to wrap their head around what's happening. And then the third thing that we do is we help people and their families to navigate. You mentioned we don't treat patients, we treat people. And we treat them with a team of people because that quite honestly adds a, a equalizer to everything because in a lot of medical encounters, there can be tons of hierarchy, <laughs> uh, which adds to other layers of issues um, that come with communication and, you know, really that, that trust factor. Uh, but when you equalize everyone as people, it really, it really changes uh, the type of care that someone can receive and how they can feel getting that care. For sure. And one of the things that we really take advantage of is that when you work with people in their homes, they don't actually get fooled into thinking they're a patient. By the time they schlep themselves through the whole system and the clipboards and the waiting rooms and the paper gowns and the everything else, they sort of take on or identify with being a patient. And doctors do the same thing. They, they identify with everything that gets them when they walk into that machine. They take their role as a cog in the wheel and uh, identify with doctors and all the sometimes ego and hubris that comes with that, right? Um, but when you're sitting eye to eye, um, in their homes, whether uh, especially when you do it by video conferencing, they click on a link, you click on a link and poof. It's nice to go visit people in their homes. But, but when the doctor walks through the front door, the power dynamic is not level. Um, they are worried about, can is there something they can smell that I can't? Is my house a mess because I'm too sick to actually keep it the way? Um, I, thought I would. Uh, will they will they notice the stains on the carpet? They're all full of all of that because you've you've invaded their home. When you walk into the home of a person, you learn a lot about who they are. But it's not necessarily by consent. So when I, when I do my work through video conferencing, everything they show me, they show me by my request, mm -hmm. if I say, you know, you talked about your garden, is it possible for you to show me your mm -hmm. garden? They can say, no, I don't want to get up or sure, let's go. And then take their gizmo and go out into the garden. I never thought about that level of consent that happens. And I know that you also uh, focus on serving Native American populations. How did that that interest or that journey come about? Um, I have a, a personal relationship to Native American culture and an interest that I've brought with me through my adulthood and a fascination with uh, sort of the ancient people of the Southwest, personally. 
um, just because I lived in Utah and traveled the Western, Southwestern United States. And so I've spent a lot of time in quiet places reflecting on the people that lived on, uh, on the land before we did. And then when I came to Northern California, um, I found myself standing on Wiat land. You know, I found myself recognizing and learning a little bit about the historical tragedies that have squeezed uh, the native communities into either sovereign reservation type environments or other sorts of organizational structures that have constrained them. And as I just generally oriented myself towards building healthcare capacity, my natural tendency is to go where the need is the greatest. And how how do you do that in a respectful way? Imperfectly, I'm sure. I think the principles I would say is number one, I, I sort of own what I am. I mean, I happen to be a white male, somewhat chubby, balding Jewish guy living on the coast of Northern <laughs> California, right? I can't pretend I'm anything but that. Mm-hmm. To work with cultures that fundamentally lack trust for very, very deep and good historical and traumatic reasons. Yeah. Modern healthcare is missing something. The place to look for that something is in enriched and preserved cultures. So I think they get that I'm very interested in what they know and I don't uh, about uh, how to care for each other uh, and what it means to to be a community. And so I think they get that that comes through, and that's. Uh, empowering to them to teach me. What is your hope for the inequities of the world, especially in rural communities? What we've seen over the last six and a half months is, you know, un- unprecedented rapid change in rules and regs and policy and reform. And we've seen this enormous uh, increase in the use of video conferencing technology to bring care to people safely. Um, we're already watching that sort of diminish and we're seeing our society beg to return to the status quo across education, across politics, across everywhere. Um, I hope that the muscular forces of the pandemic um, have sustaining and durable um, effect on uh, the best applications of telehealth technology so that people can get care brought to them on their own terms, in their own space. Um, I hope that what we've realized about how valuable this is during this particular extremely weird social experience um, is explored by the curious to find out how to use it most effectively forever. I think there will be durable, long-lasting and important changes in how people think about the power dynamics in healthcare and the location and the mechanism means by which we reach each other. Well, thank you, Michael, so much. One, for your curiosity as that eight-year-old <laughs> child, um, you know, seeing your, your papa who saw you not only as a child, but as a person who's developing which is something that a lot of adults don't see when they look at children, you know? I grew up in a household where they said, stay in a child's place, and that was very detrimental. I'm happy that you were able to 
to use that experience and that curiosity and, and run towards it. Yeah, you betcha. You know, we can bet that you and I aren't the only ones that had that experience as children. Um, and I uh, hope that the listeners look at their kids a little bit more openly and curiously and invite them to be the small people that they are. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.